0: Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today we are talking about the 2019 Oscar-nominated beekeeping documentary, Honeyland. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas.
1: And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.
0: And Adam, it's a bit of an odd time out there we are all in various degrees of isolation as covid 19 progresses and i'm sure most of the folks listening to this are the same but the good news about this show is that we never had a big fancy studio to go to in the first place so we're going to keep making shows and keep watching movies and keep thinking about theology because some of this stuff feels more relevant than ever maybe especially today's film honeyland So today for our conversation, we are joined by the Reverend Kathy Anderson, and in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask Kathy how Honeyland might help us think about life in the church and in the world.
1: In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Honeyland might help us understand the lectionary passages for Palm Sunday, which is April 4th. And in our third segment, Post Ludes, we'll take a second, Matt and I, to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following.
0: Adam, Palm Sunday is April 5th. Oh, Lord. I know time has no meaning anymore, but even so. It's a flat circle, dude. <laughs>
1: All right. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Honeyland might help us understand the lectionary passages for Palm Sunday, which is April 5th. In our third and final segment, postludes, Matt and I will take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading or watching or following.
0: Before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guests. Reverend Kathy Anderson is the chaplain at Presbyterian Mo Ranch Assembly in the beautiful hill country of Central Texas. She is a Presbyterian pastor, a theologian, and Particularly relevant to our interests today, she's also very much a beekeeper. And Kathy, I am so eager to hear your thoughts on this film and its depiction of life. Thank you for being here.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Um, I've long been a fan of the show, and I look forward to talking bees and theology.
0: So Honeyland is hardly a high-profile blockbuster, but I'm hoping that we can encourage some folks to go check it out. This film began as a project by the North Macedonian government, which sponsored a few filmmakers to go make a documentary short about a relatively unpopulated region of the country. And in the course of their exploration, the filmmakers discovered a local woman. I'm sure I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but her name is Hatija, a wild beekeeper, potentially the last wild beekeeper in all of Europe. They became fascinated with her and her craft and began to chronicle her life, until the nomadic Sam family moves in next door. Hussein, the father, is looking for any and all available means to feed his family, and he takes up Hatich's knowledge of beekeeping, but ultimately the pressures of consumption and production drive him to demand more of his bees than the natural system can accommodate. What emerges is a gripping Veritas What emerges is a gripping, verite-style documentary about sustainability, consumerism, environmentalism, and family, all set in a place of staggering remoteness and rugged beauty. Kathy, I am so eager to hear your thoughts. What did you make of this movie, and how did it connect with your own theology of beekeeping?
2: Well, I actually had to watch the movie about three times. Um, To me, it was a very... um, tender and almost gut-wrenching uh, chronicle of Hottage's life and her role with bees. And um, it offers us, even in, in 88 minutes, um, some significant uh, themes for us to, to think about and wrestle with, uh, kind of a mirror of our, our life right now uh, between sustainability and stewardship and the delicate balance of humans and creation the question of what it means to be a neighbor, all packed into this this documentary that uh, that was very powerful to me.
0: So, and, and what about you, Adam? what did What were your What were your first thoughts? What, what what stuck out to you about this? So, it's a
1: like Kathy said, it's a it's a dense movie, even though it's a very tender and quiet movie, right? So, I mean the first the first introduction that you get to Hatija is her walking in this very rugged terrain by herself. And you get this like very true sense of isolation and how, um, how hard it is, how hard her life must be. And then you get what within three minutes, one of maybe the most gripping shots of the whole movie, which is you see her high on a mountain ledge, like inching her way into a cleft in a rock where she, um, she, with a, a little piece of steel, cracks open a rock. I mean, it's very almost biblical, right? She cracks open this rock and pulls out honeycomb from bees in a rock. And it's it's a it's a stunning photography. And then you see her sort of tenderly deal with these bees. And it was at that moment that I realized, oh, this this documentary has got something to say, first of all. But... Um, but first you have to get introduced to this woman and the sort of delicate balance of her own life, which is she lives four hours away from the capital of Macedonia. The only way that she can serve and um, and, uh, and provide for herself and her, her ailing mother is by selling the honey that she makes from wild bees. And as she does, the um, she seems to do it alone. I mean, her village. She tells the the person that she's selling honey to in the market is has been gone, has been abandoned, and she's the only person left. And you get the sense that um, her life consists largely of, of of tenderness, both towards her mother and to these bees that she keeps over the years, and that is the the main source of her livelihood. Um, and I think before we move on to what becomes the antagonistic relationship between her neighbors, I think it's it's worth just considering how um how she got to that place and the the film doesn't make a lot of doesn't take a lot of time to give you some background of how she's why she's the only one left in her village and why she continues to stay. but it does intimate that that her love of these bees is um is paramount to her identity, um, and that was that was interesting to me because I don't know much about bees, and I'm glad that you're here, Kathy, because I want to know like what what is what is the attraction of of bees? Like, as you did, you notice in Hatija a sort of kindred spirit.
2: Absolutely, um, one of the things that that most smaller scale beekeepers will tell you is um, you develop a a love and a respect and a relationship with your bees. And I know that sounds kind of weird and woo woo, um, but it really does happen because you become part of observing their, their life cycle and their interaction in the world and are just sort of a uh, co-participant in that if you I think if you do it the right way uh, in terms of respecting what they tell you and what their their hive tells you and we can go into that later when she she talks about um, how she takes the honey and uh, my understanding as a beekeeper is that if I get honey and that's an if um, that's only a secondary byproduct to to keeping bees and to providing a safe space for them. Um, you don't, you don't keep bees just to get the honey. And we see the the tragic response of that when we get into the, the Sam family. Uh, but I, I did notice that. And that's what made it so heart gut wrenching uh, to see how it kind of goes off the rails a little bit later, because um, I, I found it very amazing and powerful that when she opens that rock, on the cliff, um, the first thing she says is "mashallah," um, in in Arabic, which you know you, you think it says something about God, which it does, and it it says, "Oh God has willed it," and or God is willing it, or God God demands that this happen, and and it's this beautiful dance back and forth between beekeeper. And bees, and and I talk to my bees, which sounds crazy, but um, it's just a very precious relationship between humans and insect, if you can believe that or not.
1: Yeah. Well, what do you what do you say to your bees?
2: Uh, I will say, um, you know, good morning, or hey, how are y'all doing? What's going on? Um, I'm just here to do X, Y, or Z. I won't be long. Um, I usually tell them what I'm going to do. Um, Hmm. if they get, if they get upset with me, I'll say, okay, okay, I'll back off and give you some space. Um, there's no need to get mad, you know, just (laughs) stuff, just kind of stuff like that. Uh, like you would talk, I mean, like you would talk to your dog or cat really, I guess, but, um, and it's you know or if it's a if it's a day that i really shouldn't be in the hive where it's gray or cloudy or cold uh, i'll say i'm so sorry i I really have to look in here and i won't be long that kind of stuff um things that if you were to listen to me you'd think that woman is crazy but <laughs>
0: hmm. yeah kathy one of the refrains that we get early in the film from hot when she checks the the hives is this this ethic of half for you and half for me, uh, where she will take half of the honey, uh, for her own production and her own sale. And she leaves half of it for the bees for their own nutrition. And I'm just wondering, like, is that best practice in beekeeping? Cause it becomes so much of our kind of through line and, and how this film unfolds. And I was curious how it, that bounced with you.
2: Yes. Um, uh... I think that and, and usually most beekeepers will say, you know, you have to leave enough uh, food for the bees because that's, what's going to get them through the winter and the honey that they have collected, they know how much they're going to need to survive when there's no nectar or pollen uh, flowing in terms of, of plants. And so you always want to leave them enough, if not more uh, for their own survival. And, uh, so that is that is right down the practice of um, I don't know that it's half and half, but it shouldn't be any more than half for sure in terms of whatever honey you take. Normally, beekeepers will leave uh, the the brood box and then another box of of honeycomb and then take whatever's left over after that because it will help them get through the winter. but that that is a very powerful theme that runs through there of not taking any more than, than you need and then she she says at one point in there that um that you should leave something tomorrow and that no matter how much there is there's going to be enough for us and so it it really is not taking any more than than you need or are willing
1: to give Kathy, i'm a relative bee novice and i know that bees will collect pollen and bring it back to a hive, but How does, I mean, how do they make honey? How is, what's the process by which honey is made?
2: Sure. And so if a bee goes out, when a bee goes out to collect pollen, she's also looking for nectar. And when I say she, that's right, because all worker bees are female. And in a hive, 95% of the bees in the hive are female. And the drones, which are the male bees, they don't do anything. They don't do any work. All they do is eat and mate with the queen. And so if you see a bee out in public, she's uh, a female and her job is to collect nectar and pollen. And so nectar is that sweet liquidy substance that um, is down in the, the base of the flower. That when she goes down, she'll she'll take some of that up into her um, nectar collecting part of her body. And she'll also collect pollen and the bees put pollen on the on their back legs. They have these little um, little almost like little saddlebags that collect pollen and and they will take all of that back to the hive and the pollen is stored uh, for protein to feed the new baby bees and to feed the the larvae. Hmm. The nectar is what they turn into honey and so they will store that up in one of the the honeycomb cells the little hexagon holes that are all in honeycomb they'll put that up in there and if you look in a beehive you'll see it's it can look like shiny and wet and what they'll do is they'll wait for that to dehydrate and and then they will cap it off much like canning a jar of, of jelly or or beans or something and they will it will gradually dehydrate to where it doesn't have much water in it. In fact, when you when you harvest honey, technically honey shouldn't have any more than 17% water in it. Otherwise it just turns to sugar. So that's how that that's the food that they eat. And the pollen, the pollen doesn't turn into honey. The pollen is food for the new baby bees that have hatched and the the larvae and the growing um, population of brood. So in a nutshell, that's how they get honey.
1: So as, as you watch this movie and as you thought about sort of the life cycle of a bee and how they feed themselves and how we as human beings have been beneficiaries of all of the hard work of so many different bees. I mean, what? How does what theology is at the heart of the practice of beekeeping for you? And where did you see that reflected in the movie?
2: For me, the the heart of of beekeeping and the theology that that's there for me is uh, the relationship between all of us as um, creatures in the midst of creation, and that somehow. God's hand is at work in in the beauty and wonder and intricacy of of how all of us are made. Uh, I think about that Psalm of you know I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and we are as humans, but also these bees have this this intricate balance of of how they survive and uh, and also for me the the goodness and the graciousness of God is present in, in all of this. Um, and, and I saw that in the movie with Hatija because there was this delicate balance and dance between her and the bees and almost a reverence of opening a hive and uh, seeing what it is that's in there and what the bees are doing and, and, Giving thanks to God for for whatever's happening, uh, this mashallah that, that oh God has willed this, and I, I find as a beekeeper that it's it's one of the the very close ways to get to participate in the actions of creation. Uh, There's so many things that happen in other other realms of the natural world, but this is one where we get to to have a, a close eye to how these, these insects know how to survive. And Hatija is, is participating with them in that, in a, in a reverence and a beauty that, that really resonated with me.
1: What about you, Matt? What were your responses to the movie as you watched it?
0: I would co-sign everything that we've been saying, but then I think we've got to turn our attention to what happens when this, this nomadic family moves in next door. I mean, I think this is where the film really begins to push forward, which is in in, in the kind of lived contrast between these two different ethics that, that has is um, living, as Kathy has said, very much uh, off of the land and relationship with the land in this kind of long-term connective cycle of thanksgiving with the land, uh, and this family moves in and is under a different kind of pressure. There's a, 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 pressure to, uh, to thrive. They, there's a pressure to, to feed quite a bit more, quite, quite a bit more, um, hungry mouths. Um, there's also this, this kind of pressure to, uh, to feast. I mean, the family at one point throws this huge, this huge celebratory dinner, and the the father says we we eat like kings, which seems to be p- part of the, in some ways, part of the problem that that pushes them forward. Where then he feels pressure to to extract as much value from that land as possible which then pushes him towards um underfeeding his cattle um ultimately killing a number of his cattle and then taking the wisdom of hatija and the relationship with the bees but overproducing and over the honey from the the beehives that, that that he tries to build such that the colonies end up in collapse and that contrast feels just incredibly resonant to me, in a contrast between uh, a, a, a theology of our interconnectedness with land and with neighbor um, and with ecosystem, and a theology of a theology of, of rugged individualism and production mm-hmm. and and extraction. Um, what about you, Adam? I mean, how did you see that turn? Yeah, I I think
1: we're looking at that same scene where he says we eat like kings, and the filmmakers have contrasted that right prior to that with Hatija sharing a very small piece of honeycomb with one of the kids. And it is, it's a modest little morsel, but you can sense the sort of... Not just the reverence with which she eats it but like how how delicious it is if that makes sense like that she and then to contrast that with the group of people saying we eat like kings when you've just watched a person eat was not like a king but with a sort of a, a, like a religious reverence to the thing and and I think the filmmakers are asking in that moment for you to choose what kind of consumptive habits you want to pursue. Mm -hmm. Yes, you may have access to everything that you want, but that does not make them good. Um, And that there is something very important about enjoying the thing uh, or, or loving the thing that you have that you have participated in making or that you recognize how much effort and um, and struggle went into making, and there's a sort of there's a it's a different type of deliciousness, and and it's one that I think sort of is a deliciousness that doesn't bracket out um, moral ethical questions, uh, and that that was the hard thing. I mean, to, this movie goes like does some amazing things in contrasting Hatacha with. Um, with the the Sam family, and the thing that was perhaps most telling to me is the ways in which Hatija never seems to get stung. Right. She's she moves very deliberately, but she is she seems to have a oneness with this group, and it's almost as if the bees trust her. I guess. Yes. Um, and <laughs> the. It is obvious that they do not trust these other people <laughs> because every every time they open a hive, they are immediately attacked, <laughs> and they have a, a the the smoke that's supposed to I, I guess make the bees what Kathy tired.
2: <laughs> the smoke actually masks when you, when you puff smoke into a beehive, it masks the alarm pheromone, which means uh, bees operate with smell, smell yeah. and sight. And so when a bee gets mad, she'll put off this scent that tells other bees like, Hey, I'm mad. I think you should be mad and we should all go mad together. And the smoke helps the helps mask that so they can't, uh, smell it or, or be angry. But I mean, there's a point of no return that when you when you go at them like the Sam family was doing, that no smoke in the world is going to keep them from stinging you.
1: Yeah, and that's and that becomes that becomes very apparent in the way that they go and and treat the not just the bees, but there's there's some very sad moments about how they treat their cattle. Um, that gives you some indication that they they have lost sight of the aliveness of it all, and they are seeing things simply as products to be sold. Um, And that's a, like, I think that that's a a really helpful and thoughtful analogy for how the world is working currently, which is, I mean, our questions of sustainability are not just half uh, for you and half for me, but it's a a fundamental disposition towards the world in which we live is can we honor the things that make sacrifices on our behalf and how do we honor them? How do we live with a sense of reverence, not just for the God who created these things, but also for bees who create things for us and to honor them even as they make a sacrifice on our behalf. And um, because the fact of the matter is without our intervention it wouldn't be half for them half for us it would be all for them but so they have to go without in order that we can go forth with something so how do we how do we make sure that there is some measure of justice in our consumptive habits i think i mean those those questions are central to the movie and there is this the, the maybe the saddest point of the movie is Um, is that it ends as it began with Hatija isolated, that the nomadic family has just moved on. It has has basically just, it has ruined everything. It has destroyed her her hives. Um, It has taken uh, this branch where she knew that there were other bees and has destroyed it. And now she has to sort of live alone and either A, find more hives, or... I don't know move to the city and become another you know product does that make sense
2: absolutely one of the most uh, like you like you said one of the the most painful parts of the movie is you know this family kind of comes in like a bull in a china shop or a wrecking ball and and I just wanted to yell at them to stop just stop (laughs) and and it's painful in the way that they treat their cattle, and the way that they they treat the bees, as and the way they treat their own children. And I know that there may be some cultural differences in that, but uh, the kids seem to know at some level that this is is not right, and that this is out of balance. And there's that poignant relationship between one of the one of the sons and Hatija, and and the things that they talk about. But it's like and i also resonated with this because so many times we kind of go at creation or things like hammer to butterfly wings. And it's like, it doesn't have to be this violent
0: mm-hmm. and,
2: and that creation is not uh, in the natural world is not a means to the, to an end. Um, and it was just such a, a contrast to what, Hatija was doing in her way of life that these folks just rolled in and bit off more than they could chew. And, and really the, the animals in the natural world and Hatija herself paid the consequences of that.
0: And it yeah. seems to me that like this, the, the half for you half for me ethos is not just about Hatija's relationship with the natural world, but it's also kind of a model for her relationship with neighbor and you know, she mm-hmm. is willing to share her wisdom and to share her her hives with this family that moves in, but they are not willing to reciprocate that ethos. And so what what you see is you know, the the fundamental at least for me as as someone who was new to bees, that like the, the, the fundamental turn of this film is that when the, the sam family over um overproduces their own hives those hives go and destroy hottage's hives so they cannot that that family um, their individualism still nonetheless has an impact on the entire community they they live in a connected world even if they don't act like it which felt to me deeply relevant just to like how we are behaving right now in the midst of coronavirus panic. It it felt to me relevant to like our ethos of going to the grocery store. Like how much of the toilet paper is for you and how much of the toilet paper is for your neighbor? How much do you need right now for you and your family and your, your hive? And how much can be left and how much can be shared? And the recognition that the the we can all act as our own individual hives and our own individual families and colonies, but fundamentally the virus is a community event. It it breaks across those boundaries regardless, uh, and and so for us to. Pretend as if we are all in this for ourselves actually defies the science of how this thing operates. It requires community response because it is a community event, and I, that, that that struck me in thinking about the the Sam family and Hantaja, who um, the the Sam family kind of pretends as if these are their bees, but they're not their bees. The bees are are part of a larger connected system that does not understand private property rights in the same exact way and doesn't, <laughs> and, and, and doesn't obey them.
2: Yeah, and so I often talk about, I have 10 hives out here at Mo Ranch and I talk about them as my bees, but underneath that, and I feel very protective of them mm-hmm. and don't want anybody messing with them, but underneath that, I know that they're not my bees. And right now we're in the midst of, of swarm season, which is when bees uh, get too big for their, their hive and they'll, they'll split and it's their natural way of reproducing. And, and if that happens, that's fine because that's what they're supposed to do. But there's part of me, the human part of me wants to, to catch that before it happens. So I don't, So they don't go off in a tree somewhere and I can have two hives instead of one. But but underneath it all is the bees are going to do what the bees are going to do. And it's kind of like water, like water is going to run downhill and it's going to find a way uh, without there's not much you can do to stop it. You can try. But the bees are part of something larger than me or where I live or where I have them. And they're going to. I always remind myself, bees have been surviving for millennia, and they don't need a beekeeper to manage them. And they know how to keep a balance, right, with mm-hmm. with all of life. And the best thing I can do as a beekeeper is quit messing with them. I do what I can, and then they know what to do. So they'll take care of themselves. And when we start messing around with that is when some disastrous things can happen.
0: So let me ask you this before we move on: Could y'all, could y'all use this movie in your ministries? How can you imagine using this in um, in a church setting or at, at at a at a mo ranch setting? Like, how would how could you use this to help your the churches that you serve?
1: The 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 most immediate way to use this movie would be to talk about ideas of consumerism and sustainability in a church um there's probably some some reason to watch this among ministers and to think about sort of leadership and how that operates but um the i could see this being really valuable in in environments when you want to talk about okay so how how do we create um sustainable practices in our ministry and why do we create them and how does it flow from ideas of love of neighbor i mean the idea that they're are basically only there's a there's a family in hatija and her, there are two families here those are the only people you who really are part of this movie and it's really a movie about neighbors and how do you treat your neighbor right and um using bees as a sort of allegory to talk about those things um christy my wife does a in one of her classes does a lot of work on sort of the role of consumerism as a test subject for thinking about, um, practical theology, um, and, and it's, you know, processes. And her conviction is that consumerism is itself a religious conviction. And here you see the two different types of religious convictions sort of beginning to play against each other. And I think that's an important part of coming to understand the how our consumptive habits will affect our neighbor, and why that is a religious decision to make when we, you know, decide how much we're going to buy when we're at the the supermarket right now. Um, additionally, the the thing that my wife always says in in that class is that the point is not the point of capitalism writ large is to know is to not know where your stuff comes from and not know where it goes. To just we. Capitalism works by creating chasms of knowledge and access that make it impossible to consider the creation and the disposal of our stuff. And so here we've, we see where this honey comes from. Someone in that market in Macedonia is going to buy this beautiful honey and will never, ever know the great lengths, the, the high cliff that Hatija had to walk in order to gather it. And I think that is a fundamental problem when we consider how we love our neighbor, both the neighbor who um, who is immediately next to us, but also the neighbor who continues to work on our behalf.
2: I agree with all of that. And I, I think out here at Mo Ranch where I work, uh, it would be even, I guess, more pointed because I could see using this with uh, a retreat group or uh, a, a group of students that come out to participate in our outdoor education program because I have a, an observation beehive where the bees are actually inside a classroom in a hive that I can take the, the cover off of and students or participants can look in and actually see the inside of a beehive without having to suit up 20 people in bee suits and go out into the bee yard and we can talk about the intricacy of the hive juxtaposed with the themes in the movie. And I could see perhaps showing some clips of, of that show of the movie and talking about all of those things that you just outlined, Adam, as well as uh, the setup that we have is right outside the classroom is our garden and talking about not just bees, but how our, our, food supply works and what happens when bees pollinate that and what happens if they don't and uh, the connectedness to the food on our table to these these little insects and what that means for us in a world where we hear the message of we eat like kings and you just take and take and you don't worry about where it comes from. The other thing that that I would point out is there's a There's a huge problem of or not a problem but an issue of ethics in terms of honey uh, honey that you see in the grocery store is uh, for the most part barely honey uh, there raw honey from local beekeepers is is real honey and I think Hatija points this out in the in the market um, there's a there's an ethics to this that the honey packets that you get at the drive-through is basically corn syrup that's flavored like honey, and there are ways that our world consumes this. And much like, kind of a, not to draw too negative of a connection, but the drug world of you know you cut the drugs and you get more for it. <laughs> and, and so um, I just think talking with folks about consumption and. Consumerism and trying to squeeze every last bit of life out of out of this world that that really doesn't end up serving us well.
1: What about you, Matt? Yeah, I
0: could I, I could absolutely see using this, and, and and I think to to talk about some of the themes y'all have already articulated. I mean, I think it does a really nice job of talking about um, of, of presenting really contrasting ethics of. Um, How we live in relationship to land, in relationship to neighbor, in relationship to one another, and the kind of this alternative version, and I and I think watching this and asking folks in a congregation or asking folks in a in a fellowship group to try to identify themselves within the film and try to say where where do you where do you see yourself in this landscape? I think could be a really uh, critical kind of opening. Uh, for us to have some really kind of sacred, but probably very difficult conversations, especially you know here in a in, in a big city that is relatively far removed from um its its natural landscape, I think it would I think it would pose us some some good and gripping and difficult questions. Absolutely, I, I think this is one of the more you know, practically usable films that we've talked about in a while.
1: Well, let's move on to preaching in the text for the upcoming Lectionary Sunday. But before we do, let's say we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the work that they're doing. They have stepped up in the recent weeks and have been providing really smart resources for the church in this time of social isolation, and um, I commend these articles to you. They're largely online. You should go and find them. It's really smart people. Um, doing some rich theological work around what exactly is going on right now. Also, if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday Morning Matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer.
0: All right, Kathy and Adam, let's talk about preaching. The text for this upcoming lectionary Sunday, Palm Sunday, year A, April 4th. We have, of course, Psalm 118 and then Matthew 21, as Jesus enters Jerusalem a week ahead of the Passover Kathy, as you think about Palm Sunday, what what sparks for you in light of Honeyland and in light of beekeeping? Help us unpack these texts.
2: Sure. One of the things that that really uh, that that kept coming back to me as I thought about the passages for this Sunday was uh, Jesus's actual entry into Jerusalem, where the people are are shouting Hosanna, and a lot of times we take that as a celebratory uh, recognition of who Jesus is and that He's coming into His own and as He enters Jerusalem and that they lay their cloaks and palm branches down in front of Him, but that, that this cry of Hosanna, of save us, um, is a is not necessarily a celebratory cry, but but one of pleading and. And a cry for, for help for a people that, that are in need of a savior. And, and I just, it really resonated with me and with this film of, um, Hatija doesn't say this, but as, as this really takes a turn for the worse, um, I found myself thinking, save them, like, stop this. and, and, thinking about what happens as, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, and we know what's coming, um, and the cry of the people uh, to be saved. And and I, I, I really think that resonates with us today. We may say it in different ways, but um, we don't have to look very far to know that, that in a lot of ways, humanity is kind of in trouble, uh, or, or we're faced to we're made to face some of the things that seem insurmountable and we're left at the end of the day with this cry of, of save us, help us Lord. And um, I think that's one direction I would, I would take as I think about uh, especially the gospel passage, but also, also the Psalm of, of this plea of creation that's groaning in labor pains, as it says in Romans, um, just to throw in some other scripture, just, um, help us, Lord, and save us.
0: Adam, what about you? Did you see resonance in these texts?
1: Yeah, I did. And I'm going to turn us to a different character we haven't talked much about. But there is an interesting relationship between Hatija and her mother in this. In the same ways that she is tenderly caring for these bees, she's also trying to care for her ailing mother, who is, as you into the movie, you can see is not well. It seems bedridden. Um, has some has an eye that's not working, and um, and in many ways, it sort of mirrors the, the the worker bee who goes out of the hive in order to come back and serve the the queen, and because she the, the mother never leaves. I was thinking about this relationship in uh, in light of the Passover feast and why everybody is in Jerusalem to begin with, right? Which is part of the reason that Jesus, that all of these people are lining the roads for Jesus, is not because they have specifically come out to Jesus, see Jesus necessarily, yeah. but because they're just they're there for the Passover feast, and Jerusalem is overrun, and there are thousands and thousands of people from the diaspora who have arrived into Jerusalem to try and make their sacrifice. And that's the um, that's the point of Passover. This is the reason of Passover. You are going to do what is right. And what is right at Passover is you make your sacrifice. Why is it right? Um, and you know and the Bible's not actually clear about why it's right. <laughs> it's in many ways it kind of boils down because God said to do it. I wonder if there is uh, more of a role for duty and obligation in our theologies right now. Um, I don't, you know, I want people to feel like um, in, internally motivated to do good. And at the same time, duty feels a bit lifeless. It feels stiff and rigid. But I, and I don't want to venerate Hatija too much here, but um <laughs> but there's a sort of nobility and a sense of honor in the stuff that she does. And I think it's worth considering what it means that the worker bee works. And how do we at some point realize that we are the bees in the story? I think most of us want to be special and maybe Lent is the time to remind each other that we aren't actually that special and that much of our power comes as part of a collective and the, when the work is shared, the credit goes to the hive, not to an individual bee. Um, and I think about that a lot, considering the work that we're doing right now in this in this time. Right. Um, I don't think any of us is going to solve and produce some vaccine quickly. Like, and whoever, and when this pan, and when this pandemic does pass it's going to be on account of the collective work of many, many, many people, most of whom will never be recognized for the hard sacrifice and the duty and the honor that they did in order to, and the sacrifices that they made in order that other people might live. And um, I was talking to someone recently who asked like, well, what should we be doing? Should we like, should we be going out and trying to feed this particular population, how should I be helping these doctors? And I, I appreciate that impulse. And at the same time, I also want to say like, you love people by not moving.
0: Like that's yeah. the work of today. Right. What about you, Matt? Just thinking about the donkey. Um... The donkey's <laughs> the bass. I mean, <laughs> such a rich character. But like, you know, the, there's a way in which this guy who owns a donkey is, is sort of a Hachaja and the Bees of the Palm Sunday story, where this caravan comes through, right? This nomadic family comes through, which is Jesus <laughs> and his followers and the crowds. And they're they're trying to get somewhere. They've got goals. This guy is sitting here with his donkey in some kind of presumably a subsistence relationship presumably the donkey is needed for this man's um livelihood uh, and but but the disciples walk up and say God needs the donkey and they walk off with it and I don't know whether the donkey ever gets back like we don't we don't get a the fate of the donkey after this story which for me also means we don't get the fate of the guy who probably needs this donkey right and, and and I, the the film is making me have some questions about, like um, what, what feels like a very callous acquisition of the donkey. Um, the, the, it feels like the, the the disciples going up and saying the Lord needs it. Now I have more follow up questions that the text is not answering <laughs> for me. <laughs> And because it feels like this the 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 logic of the sam family and their customer for the honey which is well, we need it i i, I need the honey and I, I need to sell the honey I, I i need the honey from these bees like i i have to feed my family i have to get this money i i need it and that's not compelling enough for me after watching this film, there are other needs, and so right. I, I want us to just live in that tension for a second, because I think it does ask a broader question about how casually the text a bit kind of throws around the the language of what what Jesus what what, what the Lord's needs are in that moment and so i think there's a sermon to be preached from that opening i don't think the text closes it so i think you'd have to go elsewhere in scripture to figure out where that closes but i do think there's an opening there that that you could wiggle around in a little bit
1: yeah i think so too i mean that that moment is hard because while this movie has a, a very specific sense of itself. It is a very tight and compact little documentary. What you never get is a sense of the social pressures or, or the details of the social pressures that the same family is feeling as well. Sure. Right? And they become the antagonists in this story and um and willing or unwilling Though they may be in in be, in because of their practices, um, but I think it's worth noting the sort of the systemic desperation of both Hatija and her mother and the same family simultaneously, yeah. like that, and they're both in need. And one of the hard moral ethical questions always come when you are trying to prioritize need in the midst of a moment
0: yeah yeah that's right well definitely we don't have answers to all of that but um appreciate y'all appreciate having a chance to talk about this movie uh, honeyland is on a hulu right now you can go watch it uh for free if you have a hulu subscription and i certainly at least for me personally i recommend it it's um I mean, A, we're all in self-isolation, so what else are you watching? This one's pretty good. And also, I think it's pretty good even if you didn't have all the time in the world. Uh, There's there's something rich here that is worth uh, your attention. But that also means it's time for us to move on and say goodbye to Kathy. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us this morning, and we'll look forward to hearing more about how the bees go and grow out at Mo Ranch as time unfolds.
2: Thank you so much. I'd lo- I love being here and uh, appreciate the chance to talk about this movie.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Kathy. We appreciate you. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called postludes, and it's a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching, following. Matt, what is
0: your quarantine, shelter-in-place postlude for the week? One of the things I have appreciated about week one of being stuck in my house is the number of people out in culture who have done alternative, weird live streams of things from their houses. We've gotten any number of like living room concerts from major musicians. We've gotten all kinds of creative work out there. People are living right. into their YouTube Live and Instagram Live selves in a way that I find just kind of richly interesting. We'll wonder how we'll think about all of this uh, three or four weeks later, but for now, it feels kind of beautiful. My favorite of them, far and away, is um, is the are the lunchtime doodles with Mo Willems. Have you all watched any of the lunchtime doodles with Mo Willems?
1: Yeah, Elliot's into him. He's he's an interesting cat. I like it.
0: Yeah, so Mo Willems is the, the children's author, the author of the Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus books and the Elephant and Piggy books. Uh, and a, 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 while our son has aged out of them a little bit, they still have a deep spot of, of um, sentimentality in this house, both from parents and child. Um, and Mo Willems, uh, st- starting last Monday, uh, has started doing a, a YouTube Live lunchtime series where he teaches kids how to draw. And it's like half an hour a day of the most soothing and calming content that I can possibly imagine. And I would be lying if I said that he was gearing this entirely for kids because I find it to be um, centering for an anxious time in a way that is deeply profound and satisfying. He. Does this live from his studio? It's a uh, and we sh- will show you some of his old drawings. He shows you some of his process. He talks through various of his books, and then he will show kids how to draw things and does kind of point by point. And so, um, the the kid in our house has taken on to these uh very powerfully. Uh, And we look forward to them every day. And and I commend them to you, both um, for any children that are in your house and also for any children that are dwelling within your heart. I think it is balm for the soul in odd moments. So the Lunchtime Doodles with Mo Willems, you can find easily on YouTube and I commend them to you. What about you, Adam?
1: So I'm gonna veer into some strange territory here. I'm surprised by that. (laughs) If you are looking for something to think about that isn't immediately a pandemic, um, but want to read something that is slightly academic, there is something, there's a very famous article by the, the anthropologist named Clifford Geertz. It's called deep play notes on a Balinese cockfight. Um, I was reminded of this article when I was watching Honeyland this weekend in part because, um, it honeyland is a it's almost hermetically sealed you don't see much outside this little village you don't know much about the same family where they came from what's next you don't know much about hatija and her background does she have family where is she going to go after everything is then said and done there's there's so many unanswered questions and you um and in many ways this is part of the tricky part of a documentary right in in what way as a researcher or as a documentarian are you viewing and um passing on reality and in what way are you creating reality in what way is the editing an opportunity to tell a story that was only marginally there in the the real extension of everyday life um i say this because deep play is one of those and immensely satisfying academic articles that is hermetically sealed. And it's about Clifford Geertz, who was in Bali doing anthropological field work and how he went to a cockfight there and how he makes sense of what the cockfight means in Balinese culture and makes all of these very fascinating conclusions about Balinese culture and how it operates and what its central principles are and the ethos and the worldview of the whole culture. And his ability to spin meaning from this one particular practice is just marvelous. It's just, it's, you you read it and it's one of those moments of, of thinking, dang, that's so smart. Here is, here is a, a true scholar. Um, the problem with deep play is that it also has to bracket out all sorts of questions in reality in order to make these very smart conclusions. And so... Honeyland similarly left me with a feeling of watching something that was truly beautiful and rich and deep, while also filling me with ch- tons of questions. Um, similarly, Deep Play is is a, a parallel text in a sense, where you learn so much about Balinese culture. And what you don't see is that, you know, cockfights are only ever attended by men. And so whatever conclusions that Geertz is making about the whole of Balinese culture has effectively erased women's experience from the conclusion. And so um, so I'm, I commend this article to you. In part, not only is it a classic in the field of anthropology, but it is a sort of virtuoso academic move that while when you're done, you're like, wow, that was amazing. And you, if you were thinking critically, you can say, and I have lots of questions. Um, so have you ever read that article, Matt? And Are you aware of it? No. Uh, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And I'm sure that there are PDFs online that you can just grab. But, um, but Geertz is a, is a seminal figure in the field and, and worth considering even if there are, I mean, for how influential notes on a Balinese cockfight is it is also um there are that many critiques of it too so it's one of those great texts like that
0: i think this is the best contrast of posters we've ever had adam (laughs) i want to talk about doodling with the guy who wrote don't let the pigeon drive the bus (laughs) and i I just feel like that lives into um our distinctiveness in in beautiful ways That about wraps it up for this episode, folks. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Buena Vista Social Distance Club. Thanks, Adam. Thanks,
1: man.